Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Welcome to a Numinous Podcast special edition three-part mini-series called Healing the Abandonment Wound. This is part two of a recorded lecture I delivered to the Canadian Association of Clinical Hypnotherapists in 2014. In part one, I defined abandonment in detail, including associated issues like spiritual abandonment. I also shared resources from Bruce K. Alexander and Dr. Gabor Mate, which I'll speak to in greater detail in this portion of the lecture. In this second part of the series, I dive deeper into the psychobiological aspects of attachment and also addiction. And here's where it might be helpful to have a few more resources on the topic of attachment. My own journey of discovery in this topic began as a pregnant woman about to become a single mother. I really wanted to make sure that even though my daughter would be growing up in a co-parenting household and potentially with some conflict in the beginning, that she knew she was wanted and felt very loved. And so I started just sort of perusing the shelves at the local bookstore and one popped out at me by Dr. Sears called The Attachment Parenting Book. Now, Dr. Sears is well known as an attachment parenting expert. I didn't know that at the time, but it definitely formulated a lot of my philosophy, and I pretty much parented with an attachment parenting style. As my daughter became just a little bit older, not much, about a toddler, I discovered the book Hold On to Your Kids, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers by Dr. Gordon Neufeld and Dr. Gabor Mate. In fact, that was my first exposure to the work of Dr. Gabor Mate. That book really impressed upon me how important attachment parenting was for the developing uh, self-esteem and sense of self of teenagers. I could really see what had been lacking in my own upbringing and also where some great teachers and mentors had filled in the gaps for me. And so that became quite a seminal piece of work for me. Fast forward about a decade, and in my own relationship with my husband, I started to notice how You know, there were some issues from my youth that I'd obviously saved up until I had the emotional intelligence to deal with them. And also what I was seeing in my clients, I was also starting to notice and recognize in my husband. And seeing this play out in my marriage became both painful and fascinating. And the book that really helped uh, us through was what I cited in the first episode, The Journey from Abandonment to Healing by Susan Anderson. From her work, I started to really start to devour everything I could on attachment. So moving from uh, sort of the abandonment side of the coin to the same issue, but speaking about it from attachment has been very enlightening for me. Some of the resources that you may want to look at now after the second episode would be by Dr. Sue Johnson, in particular, her book, Hold Me Tight. Another often cited uh, book is Attached by Amar Levine and Rachel Heller. Now, these are excellent books that I highly, highly recommend you read. But if you just would like sort of the Cole's notes, an excellent, excellent summary and synthesis of how attachment presents in relationship was written by, uh, by Nora Samaran, and she had an excellent article that circulated around the internet for a while. It's easy to find. It's called The Opposite of Rape Culture is Nurturance Culture. She does a wonderful job of extrapolating from the interpersonal to the collective and the cultural. 
Finally, what I've been reading lately is The Will to Change, Men, Masculinity, and Love by Bell Hooks. I hope you find those resources helpful. Now, let's take up again where we left off. Here's part two of Healing the Abandonment Wound. So, let's talk about um, attachment. A lot of people don't want to get into attachment either because they're sort of like, oh, that's old stuff. And I've pulled my functioning up now, so I'm fine. And like, I can't do anything about having been left alone to cry or whatever as a baby, but you know, I'm better now and I've done all this work. Um, I think what's actually happening here when people are like, eh, attachment or eh, abandonment, it doesn't really resonate with me. It reminds me of this um, quote, and I, I think it's Thomas Hora. I'm not sure who it is. It's like a doctor who said, um, there's no external remedy that doesn't, uh, in fact, at some point, uh, improve our condition without first making it worse. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you have to you have to make it hurt <laughs> again before it can get better. And because we all know that, it's way easier as to, for us to say, oh, I've done a lot of work on that. <laughs> so just give me the symptom treatment, please, because <laughs> I don't want to go to the core of it. And also, we don't want to blame because of that in, intention and impact thing. And so instead, <laughs> we just, it's the beach ball underwater, right? We have to deal with the impact so we have to, as, if we can, as much as possible, set intent, intent aside and really get to the root, which begins with attachment, healthy attachment. So you'll hear in popular culture uh, a lot about attachment parenting. And I think, and that's when, um, you know, in baby books, it's like baby wearing and co-sleeping and, you know, like skin to skin contact, you know, we don't have babies and put them in the maternity ward anymore and just bring them to their mother for feeding and then put them back. We don't do that because we know that contact is so important to create that bond, right? So attachment is the drive to pursue closeness and contact. Well, that never goes away, right, as an animal. But how do we develop it? So attachment is an emotional state but neurologically speaking, it goes through different stages. So we can actually go all the way back in utero to the fetal state and actually begin. That is the beginnings of our implicit memory system, so the emotional memory, right? So when we're born, our brains have already developed the capacity to remember sensation and emotion. So if you think about it, there's a baby swimming around, just marinating in mom's emotions, right? There is like no filter. And from a spiritual perspective, what happens when one consciousness, one forming nascent consciousness enters another one? It's very There's no answer to that. That's rhetorical. But, <laughs> but, but it's an interesting question to ask since from a transpersonal approach, which is my approach, we're always asking the questions on the physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual level. So I, d I submit that to you as sort of food for thought. It's not until later in our first few years that we actually 
uh, develop the brain structure for conscious cognitive memory, for, for mem remembering events. So this, this kind of area, so we've got our um, orbital frontal cortex. So in this part where the emotional brain is, kind of right behind the eyes, actually. I don't want to read too much into that, but I always find that very interesting. Right around this zone, spiritually speaking, you know what I'm talking about here. It's our intuitive sensing, right? So we talk about like, oh, yeah, we're picking up nonverbal cues at spiritual level. Very important development of it. Uh, an energy center there. So right behind our eyes in the orbital frontal cortex, in order to develop healthy function, it requires healthy emotional input from an attached parent. So what I mean by that is, uh, well, I'll, I'll give you this study that I think illustrates it really well. They did a study with uh, new mothers, some who experienced postpartum depression, and others who did not experience that. And what happens in this orbitofrontal cortex is we actually start, our brain starts to develop this uh, sort of reward punishment, the expectation muscle kind of, right? So we're expecting what we can anticipate we will get with different behaviors. And it's kind of like a constant game of who loves me, who loves me not? Who loves me, who loves me not, right? Right through here. So. With the, uh, they wired everybody up to the brain scans and started to measure how joy was being recorded by the babies of the mothers who had uh, easy first year, right? So they're having joyful experiences and the babies are, okay, this is good, this is good, right? They're picking it all up sort of subtly through the eyes, through the ears, through all these subtle senses. In the babies of the moms who had postpartum depression, even in the joyful encounters, those babies were, over time, less and less able to experience joy because they weren't receiving the input that sends the message to their bodies and their brains through their emotional brain, this is joy. That always breaks my heart. Right? Like, they just have not developed the capacity for, oh, this is joy. And that mother, God bless her, that poor mother, who's just doing the best she can, is loving the best she can, but she doesn't have what's happening there that helps the brain fire and function and develop in that healthy way that gives us the capacity to feel joy and coping and that sort of thing. So abandonment is a psychobiological process. It's, it's, it happens in the brain as much as it happens in the environment, as much as is a felt sense. It's very important to recognize that. And we'll talk later about neuroplasticity because that's got to come in, which is where hypnotherapy is so great, in order to be able to cope with the abandonment wound, which just will never go away. And uh, Linda also mentioned the givens. We're just always going to be hurt by people and events and life. And so this is what we're trying to do, is develop our coping mechanisms. 
So everybody always kind of uh, focuses what I notice in the literature and in a lot of therapies on the initial sensitizing event. So what happened? What's the why? What's the cause? What's the root? What's the origin? But a really thorough map of the trauma can be so elusive because of what is happening in the brain. So when you take people back in hypnotherapy to figure out what's the initial isolating event, it can be a little bit tricky, right? We think, oh, everything's in the subconscious mind. But we have to, as practitioners, get a little more precise and a little more careful about that. Because what we know happens in the brain is that typically with trauma, we have both memory gaps and vivid experiences. So it's not linear. It isn't all in there, and here's why. So your amygdala, the body's alarm system, gets input directly from your body without needing your cerebral cortex, right? So everybody knows that if you saw the stick in the bush, or you know, you, you thought it was a snake, and so your body reacts, and da da da. You don't need to think about is that a stick or a snake? It, it just happens. So then when you notice, that it's actually a stick and not a snake, you can go, oh, okay, I can calm down. But you didn't need that information for your body to like, go uh, into overdrive. So what's happening is it's just going right past the, the, the part of you that records the experience, right? It's going past the recording part. So the hippocampus, which is where the memory function of the emotional brain is, it uh, develops at a different rate and different time from the amygdala. So there's very little contextual memory. So we won't, what I'm saying is the part of your brain that can record events isn't there until much later. So the part of your brain that records emotional response is the one that gets the information first. And lots of times it just bypasses the part of your brain that even records the information. I don't know why you flipped out, right? So we can take people back in regression and be like, nothing happened, but they still have this vague feeling because it's very possible that their brain didn't even record it in the first place, especially if they were under the age of sort of 8, 9, 10. Now, other times, so this is another reason why when somebody who's like, I had a great childhood, you know, I don't actually remember that much before 8 because it was so great. <laughs> it's like, Red flag, red flag, red flag, <laughs> right? It's, it's yeah. Um, now, other people uh, can witness or participate in a trauma uh, and have very bright, vivid memory of it because of what's going on hormonally. And so it jacks up and sort of kickstarts that part of the brain that records cognitive memory. You don't know which kind of person you're going to be. You don't know which kind of event is going to trigger which. So you can have one area of your life where you're like, oh, yeah, I completely, I see the colors, I can smell the smells, it, like it's all totally there and vivid. So the absence of that doesn't mean nothing happened. It just means that a different part of your brain was able to function and fire at that time. So we can't rely on uh, uncovering in our therapy to try to get to the the taproot of it, which is why understanding the complex of abandonment is helpful, because what you're looking for is pattern. So there's no one symptom that is diagnostic for abandonment, but a cluster is indicative. Okay? Okay, so that's what's happening neurologically, but what's happening relationally? So deprivation 
creates that heightened urge towards closeness in some people. And when the need isn't met in the child or the adult, what happens is this heightened stress. So what's stress really? Stress is a drive towards homeostasis in the face of excessive demands. So you're like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Like homeostasis, right? The, the, the drive to keep things the same. And so you're like, I'm okay, I'm okay, even as more stuff is getting uh, loaded on. So the, the child or the adult in the face of, let, let's take the, the crying baby, although it could happen at any time. In other words, you stop crying because nobody's coming. And so you're like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then you start to hope that the not crying is the behavior that will get the person to come. So then like, you're still waiting and waiting and waiting. And everybody's going to be different on this continuum about how long they can wait still hoping the other person's going to come, holding that stress. And then eventually what happens is you've sat in a prolonged state of helplessness long enough that you just stop crying and suppress emotion and you just protect yourself by being like, you know what? Screw people. <laughs> like, they never come anyway. And so you protect in order to not be hurt. So the trauma then is frozen inside you. So it is like the... the the flick is switched in fight, flight, or freeze, and now you're just stuck there. You know, it never ends. So in order for healthy brain and emotional and relational development to occur in children, because most of us can find some abandonment <laughs> origin pretty early, a child has to have an attachment relationship with a person with kind of basic four basic qualities. <laughs> they have to be reasonably available. So it's usually not somebody who just comes once a year, even if it's like grandma and grandpa are so great and they were the sheltering influence and eye of the storm or whatever. If they're not reasonably present and available in a physical kind of way, it, that's not attachment. That's not good enough. They might feel very bonded and there may be a strong urge towards attachment, but that's not attachment. So they have to be reasonably available. They have to be protective. So they can't be like throwing you under the bus with sarcasm or, you know, like there's a lot of different ways to not be protective, right? They have to be psychologically present. So mental health, that can make it difficult. Um, uh, you know, a parent, a mom who's getting back into the workforce or, you know, launching a company or whatever, you know, when work becomes the other baby, that's not psychological presence, even if you work from home and all of that. And then finally, they have to be reasonably non-stressed out because of that whole, uh, we'll call it energetic thing that's happening here, right? It's like, what's, what is love and joy and attachment if everything is like, I'm really stressed and I only have so much time for this. That good thing, right? So those are the four uh, sort of hallmarks of healthy attachment relationship for the uh, adult and the child. Otherwise, the child can suffer a whole host of impacts, including, like I said earlier, low self-esteem, anxiety. Um, another thing is their salience attribution is off. So salience attribution is basically assigning a value to your needs. So a person 
like, this is a good one for people who are highly functioning. A person who uh, has a, uh, a deeply compensated for abandonment wound often assigns a very high value to false needs and a very low value to real needs. So a false need like um, money, um, beauty or aesthetics, sex, and a low, the low attribution of need would be intimacy, connection, relationship, like what we sort of commonly, you know, hope is at the root of that, right? So, so remember the continuum. You can totally overcompensate towards achievement, acquisition of gold stars and blue ribbons, whatever those are in our culture, right? You can totally do that as a way to, you're trying to fill that thing that is the abandonment wound. You're trying to show, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. <laughs> Stress inside, right? That's attachment. Let's talk about addiction because there's the continuum of addiction as well. Um, it's very interesting in, in the realm of hungry ghosts with Gabor Mate, he's working at the Portland Hotel, right, downtown east side, and he's, he has a, you know, for physicians they call it sans froid, which is cold blood, right? It's like you have to be pretty, even Stephen, to work with really addicted, traumatized people. So he writes pretty honestly about, like, he's kind of a dick, right? <laughs> and he's, like, pretty cold with them. Meanwhile, he's got his own compulsive uh, shopping habit of classical music. But could you imagine spending $8,000 a month on something like that? Like, it's very eye-opening. <laughs> You're like, whoa. Kind of hard to do. Kind of hard to do. You would think, right? Lots of music not listened to. So what's that about? So he writes very um, candidly about judging his clients as he then himself is, like, off secretly going to the store, like, spending all hiding from his wife. Like, it's very interesting. So... So I'd like to talk about addiction because it shows up in so many different forms and is it's particularly well hidden amongst um, our high-performing clients, of which I have many. So in the case of addiction, there is always an abandonment wound as a precursor. And it always involves isolation or dislocation. Every addiction involves an isolation or a dislocation. So what do I mean by that? Isolation meaning attachment or not within your immediate surroundings or the culture. And dislocation meaning I had strong attachment, but I don't have it now. So think about, um, think about reservations. Think about you know, what is residential school? but cultural dislocation that cuts you off from a sense of belonging and eradicates that sense of connection and attachment. So belonging, every addiction is rooted in lack of belonging. And people love to talk about instant addiction of substances, but I, I would commend to you and submit to you to read Bruce Alexander's work on that, because there have been many large-scale studies that show 
that, you know, and they, this is what Rat Park is. Here's, here's the rats. <laughs> so when the, the war on drugs really kicked in, got really full funding in the US, they were using these very cruel uh, um, experiments with rats. And this is like in the 70s and 80s, where they would give them heroin. And so the rats would have this, like no water, nothing else. All they would have is this little vial of uh, heroin. And they wanted to see, like, will the rats become addicted if, if it's around? And so what they found was, like, of course, you know, the rat takes it once and acts weird and gets sick and it's really awful to watch, but then they just go back to it. So it was like, wow, this stuff is like potent because every time, every rat becomes totally addicted within a very short period of time. Bruce Alexander started to go, well, I wonder if there's some rats that have more of a sort of propensity or proclivity towards it than others. And it's hard to tell, you know, it's hard to control for that. So we're going to put a few rats together and see which ones, and then we'll isolate the ones that get addicted first, and we'll study that. Well, what happened when they were all together? The rats would take some of the water. It was, it was sweetened water that had heroin in it. They'd take it, and they'd be like, oh, that made me feel sick. They would never go back again. So not a single rat in the group of rats became addicted. So we start to be like, maybe there's something else happening in here. Maybe it's stressful for the rats to be alone, and there's nothing else to do. And that sort of thing. So he started Rat Park. And they started to do all kinds of things to try to get the rats <laughs> to be addicted. But it's like, if there's stimulation and there's community and belonging and all this stuff, there was like, they couldn't get the rats addicted. So then he started to be like, I wonder what happens if you look at human populations. And what do you know? The ones who are most likely to become addicted, when you look at this, are the people who have been dislocated or they are isolated. There's no psychosocial integration. Frequently, these are people who show it visibly, but more and more in our culture, it's easier to hide. So what I mean by that is, yeah, First Nations who have been dislocated from homeland, and it's like a people without a home, you, you can see them. You can see them, right? It's like, oh, you are an addicted person and you're on the street and you look like everybody else here, so it must be your people. Well, you have to look at what's happening cult in the larger culture. But even if you look at, uh, you know, populations who are, um, who have other factors around isolation, around you know, people who fucked up, basically, people who've screwed up, or, uh, you know, kids leaving home early, etc. All of the populations that you would consider more at risk for addiction, every one of them is also more likely to have been afflicted with some kind of deep abandonment wound. Sexual abuse, abandonment trauma, parents who were not psychologically or emotionally available, da, 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 da. all of those other uh, abandonment conditions are pre-existing in people who have a likelihood to become addicted. So I would challenge you to work with any of your clients with addiction to not find some abandonment there. So. When it comes to the spiritual people, 
So remember that uh, abandonment wound underpins workaholism, um, shopaholism, sex and porn, all of the things that we think of the isms. It also underpins uh, digital, right? Like getting antsy, what's going on on Facebook, right? It's not real, but it's the closest thing to social integration. And even what I would term excessive spiritual seeking and experimentation, it's just like you're constant, and then I went to this, and oh, I went to that, and oh, it's like this insatiable desire for, you know, it's like, oh, connection, connection, but it's like, but what is missing God? Like, what is like, you know, when does it stop, right? So uh, I think I gave you the notes about uh, Bruce Alexander's The um, Myth of Instantaneous Addiction, but I would really... I really recommend, <laughs> okay, I'll paraphrase it for you because I know nobody will. In Roots of Addiction and Free Market Society, this is where the cultural piece comes in. He specifically, he did many studies after the rat thing because he was like, something bigger is happening about belonging here. So he studied the First Nations and that one's pretty easy. White people off their land, you systematically make them feel isolated and stupid and you take their children away, what's going to happen? There's going to be abandonment wounds. However, he also studied uh, settling. So he went back through the history of the settling of Canada. And remember the Hudson's Bay Company had outposts and they, you know, they were quite a proud company. And coming to Canada and uh, expanding the fur trade meant that you had these outposts and some of them quite northern and you would be uh, out there for a long time, either like hunting or trading with the First Nations. And, but I mean, you had to have stout people. So where did they go? They went to northern Scotland, to the Orkney Islands, because uh, from a climate perspective, it's cold. Uh, those people were very stout and quite, um, they were known for their sobriety and... Um, oh, this is a long time ago. <laughs> and when you go back through the history and keep reading it out, it's like, oh, origin stories here. So we're talking epigenetics, right? We all carry the trauma of our ancestors. So Orkney Islands, they recruit all of these stout, well-acclimated to the Canadian uh, climate uh, uh, outdoorsmen, right, who are going to come and settle and they get land, da-da-da. So they come over... And what happens? They have to sever ties with a culture that had been historically very tight-knit. Very tight-knit uh, relationally and also very tied to the land. So sense of place, really strong. They send them to Canada, and what would you get? You'd be out there trapping, tanning, all that stuff, and you would get a mailbag once a year. What did they find? They, so along with your mailbag, you get your supplies and you get whiskey and you get the, 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 what did they find? Within a year, rampant alcoholism, rampant, uh, very high suicide rates and people just kind of signing everything over to the company and like could not keep people going. So they almost did their own clinical trial in what happens when you take people and sever their connection with a sense of place and a sense of belonging, and you isolate them, and you give them something that will numb that. So, uh, yeah, and then he goes on to talk about how that echoes through the free market in many different ways. So, um, so instantaneous addiction 
is a myth. Hope you enjoyed that second episode of this three-part Numinous podcast mini-series, Healing the Abandonment Wound. In the third and final episode, I'm going to be giving a very brief overview as to how I incorporate hypnotherapy into the five-step therapeutic approach to recovering from the abandonment wound. As always, I really appreciate you supporting the show, and until next time, Take care.